This is the 28th in the series of podcasts produced by the British Society for Haematology. This particular podcast covers the guideline on the laboratory diagnosis of malaria. We've had to record over Zoom due to issues relating to COVID-19 pandemic. So we do apologize in advance for any loss in sound quality that you may notice. I'm Professor Peter Chiodini. I'm a parasitologist and an infectious disease physician. I'm director of the United Kingdom Health Security Agency Malaria Reference Laboratory. And I'm also scheme organizer for the UK National External Quality Assessment Service for parasitology. That includes schemes for morphological diagnosis of malaria, diagnosis of malaria by rapid diagnostic tests, and diagnosis of malaria by molecular methods. For this talk, I shall be taking you through the British Society for Haematology guideline on laboratory diagnosis of malaria, highlighting points that will be relevant to your practice and giving you pointers to where you may seek further information and how you will be able to access help if you wish to increase your expertise in this critical area. First, I'm going to tell you why we need this guideline. So we'll look at the basics of the malaria problem and why we need to continue excellence in diagnosis. I'll then highlight three areas. The first will be on malaria microscopy. The second will be diagnosis of malaria by rapid diagnostic tests. And the third will be the increasingly used malaria molecular methods. So first of all, why do we need this guideline? We've had blood films for malaria since 1892, when Romanovsky developed his stains that are the foundation of what we now call Gimsa stain and field stain. It has served us well for over a century, and morphology is still our best friend when it comes to diagnosis of acute malaria. And for that reason, we have to have a good look at it in this guideline and enhance and continue to maintain expertise in morphological diagnosis. So let's go to the guideline and we'll look at some of the important areas for the morphological diagnosis of malaria. So I'm now looking at the PDF version of these guidelines, and we'll start with recommended procedures and basic procedures. Since the days of Romanovsky and his early successors, we have used thin and thick blood films. They can be rapidly prepared. They can be done and are done very frequently in hematology laboratories. So none of this is new technology. After all, it's over a century old but it is still an area where critical mistakes can be made if people don't pay attention, hence the guideline. So we recommend that for the diagnosis of malaria, well-stained thick films and thin films should be examined by an appropriately qualified microscopy. Now, there are caveats for this. First of all, the preparation of the film, which should not be beyond the technology of any haematology laboratory. Thick films are more difficult because it's like a thick drop, five microliters or so of blood on the slide spread out. 
um, such that it's possible to read print through the film, that gives an idea of the thickness, and then stained without fixing. But a critical thing, and where it often goes wrong, is the pH of the staining solution. I'm now looking at figure one from the guidelines. This shows you thin blood films made from the same plasmodium falciparum positive blood sample. On the left-hand side, they've been stained at pH 6.8, which is in common use in hematology laboratories. On the right-hand side, they've been stained at pH 7.2. And you'll see very clearly that it's only when they're stained at pH 7.2 that you can see the proper morphology of the parasites and also things like Maurer's clefts in the red cells. Failure to examine at pH 7.2 will result in misidentification of the parasite. And you only have to look at figure one to see how hard people make it for themselves if they stain at the wrong pH. So a critical point of error would be not to stain at pH 7.2. I'm now going to move on to quantification of parasites. For Plasmodium falciparum, and also for Plasmodium nolzi, it's essential that the parasitemia is quantified. You can either use percentage parasitemia, which is in common use in British haematology laboratories, or it's possible to use parasites per microliter. The important thing is that it shall be accurate. So in this guideline, we give you information on how to quantify a parasitemia. And if you look at table one, you will have an idea of the confidence limits of parasite counts based upon the number of parasitized cells in a thousand red cells. Now, it does matter in that clinicians will judge the seriousness of the malaria infection according to various criteria, many of them clinical, but crucially, in addition to species, the percentage parasitemia for Plasmodium falciparum and Plasmodium nolzii. The other important point is identification of the actual species present. In the UK at the moment, around 80% or so of the parasites that we find as imported malaria cases are Plasmodium falciparum. That other name for that parasite is malignant tertian malaria, and it's aptly named. In less than 1% of the cases each year, we get Plasmodium nolzii which is equally as dangerous. So the first thing is find out what species you're dealing with. And if it's Plasmodium falciparum or Plasmodium nolzii, you need a parasitemia. The other confounder of this is where you may have a parasite that looks like Plasmodium falciparum, but there's no relevant travel history. And that brings into play the possibility of Babesia. And figure two shows you Babesia microti, which we see as an imported disease, particularly from northeastern United States. We occasionally get indigenous cases of Babesia divergens in the UK and compares them with Plasmodium falciparum. Now, you'll see Babesia microti rings compared to Plasmodium falciparum parasites. They can be confused and therefore it's always important to think holistically and add a travel history to the um, information about the parasites that you see. So those are critical things when it comes to malaria diagnosis, but there are 
areas where help is available for you. The Malaria Reference Laboratory will receive all your positives and we hope and expect that you will send them to the Malaria Reference Laboratory for species confirmation. It's free of charge for that. And also, in the event of you're unsure of the species, even more important that you refer it. Sometimes you have a patient where you really do think it's malaria, but you're not seeing any. And in that situation, also, we can assist you. So you're not on your own. You have help available. And the mainstay of all this is underpinned by reference laboratories and the details of reference laboratories where you are likely to be based in the UK are given in this guideline. I'm now going to move on to rapid diagnostic tests for malaria, also known as lateral flow assays, are the kind of technology now that everybody knows about following the COVID pandemic. So whereas before it would be necessary on occasion to explain to people what a lateral flow assay was, now everybody pretty well has done one. The malaria ones are less easy to do than the COVID ones simply because they need a blood sample and there are more stages involved. Nevertheless, there are widely used technique now for malaria diagnosis and have tremendous benefits. In the tropics, they have transformed care in that they don't need a laboratory, they don't even need electricity, and therefore they can be done literally in a village, in a rural tropical area. And therefore, for the Global Malaria Programme, these have been a wonderful innovation and have saved many lives already by correctly diagnosing or indeed excluding malaria. They have come into use in the United Kingdom and they are used increasingly on call. There are caveats to that as follows. They are less sensitive than an expert microscopist, so we recommend that they should be used in conjunction with blood films. They do not replace them, and our recommendation is that both should be done. The other point is that we now have mutations in Plasmodium falciparum, whereby histidine-rich protein 2 can be not produced by the parasites. There can be gene deletions for HRP2 and indeed for HRP3. And therefore, it's possible to get a negative rapid diagnostic test, even if there's falciparum malaria present. In the guideline, we give details of the countries where this might be concerning. We also give details of what to do if you think you're facing that situation. It might occur when you see parasites in a blood film, but a negative rapid diagnostic test. Overall, though, these dipsticks, as they are colloquially called, um, are very good for Plasmodium falciparum, and many of them are also good for Plasmodium vivax. None of those currently available are of high sensitivity for Plasmodium ovale or Plasmodium malariae, and they don't reliably detect Plasmodium nolsi. Some don't see it at all, and some may misidentify it. So tremendously powerful techniques can be assistance at night when someone inexperienced is on call, but as with any technique, they have their place, and it's not our view that they should replace blood films. So please do consult the guideline. We go into a lot of detail there as to how to use rapid diagnostic tests. We know that laboratories are good at using them because we run an external quality assessment scheme for them, 
and any laboratory that's performing them that wants to go for UCAS accreditation would be well advised, indeed almost obliged, to join an EQA scheme for that analyte. The other point about rapid diagnostic tests is that they can occasionally give a prozone effect. So there may be a great deal of antigen present from the parasites, but a negative rapid diagnostic test. So again, be aware of that when you're considering these RDTs. And then finally, as a summary, in table two, we give our recommendations for on-call specimens where malaria is seen frequently, how to handle a positive for p-falciprum in the RDT, a positive for non-falciprum, or a negative RDT. And that will be very helpful guidance to those in the laboratory who are on call. So these guidelines should be living in your um, SOPs in your individual laboratories and consulted regularly. I now want to move on to nucleic acid detection methods. Since the previous guidelines in 2013, these have increased both in number and in quality and are now available in frontline use. Almost all of those in use are still based on DNA rather than RNA. The latter methods are used in controlled human malaria infection for vaccine trials, for example, or for anti-malarial drug trials but are not routinely used for frontline clinical diagnosis. They're at least tenfold more sensitive than microscopy, whereas the very best microscopists might get to five to 20 parasites per microliter routinely. Probably every expert will get to 20. About a third of the time, they'll get to five parasites per microliter. But PCR will get to 0.5 or one parasite per microliter. So you get an idea of how much more sensitive they are. Their use now has come in with, for example, the lamp-based assays, which are available as commercial kits and are available for purchase and use in UK laboratories. So individual laboratory directors will need to take a view as to whether or not they should deploy them in their laboratories. For example, if their hospital sees malaria every week, two or three times a week, their microscopists will be skilled up. And if they back that up with rapid diagnostic tests, they'll be in a good position. But if they're working in a laboratory where they might see one every three months or in some laboratories, one every year, then it's difficult to maintain the skill of laboratory staff. And in that context, people should have a serious look as to whether they should be deploying a molecular method. If they decide not to deploy it themselves, they could also have rapid access to it in another laboratory that does, for example. Nevertheless, um, we've looked at the performance of lamp-based assays, for example, of diagnosis of malaria in returning travelers and have been impressed with their performance. The caveat to molecular methods is that Following treatment, they are not helpful for follow-up because the nucleic acid may be positive, for example, for up to four weeks in a recently treated infection. So whereas one will follow a patient with blood films, daily blood films, until negative, the PCR will still be positive beyond that time. 
in theory, it's been possible to use the cycle threshold of a PCR to use for following treatment, but that's not widely done. Again, it is done in drug studies, for example. So nucleic acid detection methods will expand, and some of them are the equivalent of plug and play, and they deserve a thought in the minds of the laboratory directors as to whether or not they might want to use them. Now, one of the problems with malaria, and disasters occur when malaria is not thought of. If a clinician thinks of malaria, laboratories in the UK are good. We know from the EQA scheme they can find malaria, they're good quality, and these guidelines will underpin that. However, clearly a laboratory can only diagnose malaria if it's asked to do so. And therefore, there is always the possibility of a misdiagnosis if the clinicians aren't thinking of it. But there is the potential for a safety net there in that if a patient is found to have thrombocytopenia in the laboratory, for example, their full blood count goes through the autoanalyzer, a blood film should be examined, first of all, to validate the platelet count, and secondly, to seek an explanation for it. And in that situation, sometimes malaria is detected. So an alert laboratory person seeing thrombocytopenia, looking at the blood film, has the capacity to diagnose malaria, even if the clinicians haven't thought about it. And some auto-analyzers also have flags of various abnormalities that might be compatible with the patient having malaria, but they're often machine-specific. So the laboratory has a part to play maintaining suspicion, certainly in the presence of thrombocytopenia. We do recommend laboratories should participate in one or more of the available external quality assessment schemes, and the United Kingdom Accreditation Service would require that for performing those tests. Reference laboratories are available, again, in different parts of the United Kingdom. There are different reference laboratories. Laboratories should use their own reference laboratory and make sure that blood films and an aliquot of the EDTA sample are sent so the laboratory can confirm the species and, if necessary, given a liquid blood sample, undertake molecular testing should it be indicated. And in table three of our guidelines, we summarize the procedures for referral to a reference laboratory. We are of the view that these guidelines are meant to be educative and supportive. And in the external quality assessment scheme, our main ethos is education and maintenance of expertise. It's not a punitive system, it's education. So we set out an example in the guidelines of how to undertake training, continue education and maintenance of expertise. We give some useful websites where people can look at ongoing training. We indicate face-to-face -face training sources and also a website where high-quality pictures of malaria parasites are available. And now I want to move on and summarize this. No one should die of malaria. And death from malaria is associated with delay in diagnosis. 
Laboratory diagnosis in the UK is good, but morphological skills are under threat by older staff who had many years of experience retiring, fewer staff of the younger cohort necessarily taking an interest in parasites. And so we are very keen to avoid the situation where there's any de-skilling of the workforce. Provided these guidelines are followed and the spirit of them, which is education and training, is taken on board by those who read them, I'm confident they will play their part in maintaining diagnosis in the UK. And I want to finish with saying that the authors of this guideline, plus the expert laboratories involved in it will all be happy to provide support and advice if laboratories wish to have more help with either advice or access to training for their staff. I hope you enjoy the guidelines and please do use them. I'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast and I very much hope you've enjoyed it. I would like to invite you to visit the British Society for Haematology website, where you'll be able to listen to other exciting podcasts from the British Society for Haematology on a variety of important guidelines, which I'm sure will also be of assistance to you in your wider practice.